most of our 911 calls are not time life sensitive emergencies. Uh, are, we take an oath to do no further harm. If we know that we're doing something that causes further harm while we're getting to a call that probably doesn't need uh, an immediate response, then we're not fulfilling our oath. Just this morning, somebody asked uh, on a live interview, um, are you guys still operating without license siren? I said, yes, we are, because uh, the roads are still bad. And, and the, the reporter, the news anchor said, have you considered doing that like all the time? Hello and welcome back to EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and this week I'm inviting a returning guest. Uh, the rotating door is rotated him back in. Love to have him on because he has such a fresh view of things that are going on in the world. Welcome back, Mr. Matt Zavadsky. How are you? Rob, it is always a pleasure. I love talking with you despite your speech impediment. And you said that just the way I wrote <laughs> it, which is another standard robism. We're going to have a few robisms exactly. today. Exactly. Matt, you've been in the EMS One news, you've been on the national news, you've been making the news, and so we're going to talk about a range of topics that you are smack bang in the center of. Um, but to kick us off, uh, the most recent article that uh, you wrote for EMS One, and it's uh, it will be in the show notes and it's available everywhere, is EMS On Demand, the next big transformation for the profession. And so you are or you have created a bespoke service that you're using your MIHCP folk to get into, which, of course, is helping with demand, I'm sure. But why don't you give us the backstory? It is, Rob. You know, it's helping with demand, but it's also helping with the financial sustainability of mobile integrated healthcare programs. So this was a, a product of a back-of-the-napkin conversation that Dr. Dan Swayze and I had probably back in 2016, 2017, where we were, you know, brainstorming over a Starbucks coffee about, you know, economic woes for community paramedic programs. And, you know, we were talking about the number of organizations and companies that were doing uh, essentially on-demand urgent care. And at the time, back in 16, 17, there were just a handful. But recently, over the last couple of years, certainly as a result of the uh, public health emergency, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in the number of programs that were offering telemedicine on demand, that were offering uh, home visits on demand. You look at organizations like Ready Responders, Dispatch Health, MedArrive. And, you know, it, one of the mantras that we've always said is that if someone's going to get paid to reduce our call volume, it should be us, right? It shouldn't be anybody else. So we thought, okay, if, if an EMS agency has a good reputation in the community, they've been doing a good job with mobile integrated healthcare, why not just offer this a, a subscription? So like many communities, many agencies, we've had a traditional ambulance subscription membership program forever. And we took that concept to a very upscale, independent uh, residents retirement community here in Fort Worth. They were having a particular challenge with some medical resources uh, during the day or after hours. And we started this MedStar on demand. Basically what it is, is two, two, three key components. One, if you have a subscription program uh, for your regular ambulance work, it has all the regular ambulance stuff, you know, waiving deductibles, coinsurance, you know, that kind of thing that most subscription programs have. However, um, with the what we call MedStar Saver Plus, which is the plus part of this, 
We will make available to you a community paramedic 24 hours a day, seven days a week, within one hour of when you call our 10-digit hotline. So if you wake up at 2 in the morning or you you know wake up from a nap at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and you just don't feel well, and, and it's not enough that you don't think you need to call 911, but you're just not sure. And, and you want somebody to come check you out, or you have kids and you want somebody to come check your kid, or you have parents and you want somebody to go check your parents, they can call us on a 10-digit number and we send a community paramedic within the hour to check them out and see how they're doing. As with most programs, those community paramedics have uh, expanded protocols that are authorized by the medical director. Um, and we already have, as part of the enrollment process, the patient's baseline medical information. What medications are they on? Who's their doctor? What's the contact number for the doctor? So we can do that when we literally get called and we go out and see them. The third component is 911 navigation. So if the patient's enrolled in our Star Saver Plus program and they call 911, we flag them in our computer system. We know who they are. We add a community paramedic to the response plan for that response. And when the community paramedic arrives with the ambulance, uh, in a second vehicle, sec- secondary vehicle, they can have a conversation with the patient and do it as part of the assessment. The crew does the assessment. Do you need to go to the ER? Maybe not. Let's get your doctor on the phone. Can we do some scene treatments here? Get you referred to urgent care. Get you referred to your doctor tomorrow if uh, we can mitigate you know, the reason that you called 911. And those that trio of services, Rob, have been very, very attractive to members of our community. It's not cheap. Um, the enrollment in that program is $350 per household. Um, but people love having the availability of calling really on demand anytime and have the same type of uniformed, respected professional arrive at their house within an hour to check out their healthcare issues. Um, so I think that, that from a, a community trust perspective, from a economic viability perspective, and from a logic perspective, the local EMS agency who's got a director who's innovative enough, a medical director who's innovative enough, who wants to offer this to the community, uh, instead of the community members paying for dispatch health, paying for ready responders, paying for MedArrive, have them subscribe, get the revenue in your EMS agency, build that community relationship, and quite frankly, expand your MIH program to really be more of your everyday operations. So I just whipped out the calculator while you were talking there, and 350, you need probably 500 enrollees to make it self-sustaining, or at least to have, you know, a couple of paramedics or a paramedic 24-7. So in a, in a large metropolis that you're in, I would imagine that's relatively easy to achieve, and therefore then one thing leads to another and you're, and you're, you're on the road. Is that, uh, is that a false assumption, or is that, uh, am I getting near the money here? It, it is a good assumption if you're doing it as a standalone program. Um, and when we did this with Trinity Terrace, the, the national company that um, piloted this with us for the first two years so we can test it and see if it actually worked, they paid for every resident in their facility to have the availability of this program. And there were 450 uh, residents, resident units, units, if you will, in their high-rise, beautiful downtown on the river um, facility. So um, very economically viable right out of the box. But remember, Rob, that if th- this is really for agencies that may have an MIH program already 
going in their system. And this is a supplement to the revenue being generated, at least for us, because, you know, we wouldn't um, necessarily have to staff uh, a couple of community paramedics just for this program unless, and, and we're sort of seeing that now, and now that we've opened it up to the public, the public has really liked this program. So we do periodic analysis to say, okay, how many are enrolled in the Star Saver Plus program? How many um, 911 calls did we have to respond to with a community paramedic? How many urgent calls do we have to respond to with a community paramedic to make sure we're resourcing it appropriately? Um, but to be quite frank, the utilization is very, very low. When, when we were doing it for the first two years as a pilot with that retirement community, uh, we received, I think, 27, maybe 28 on-demand service calls for the first year. It's not a huge resource suck. Um, and the community paramedics are on duty anyway for other programs. It was a very, very marginal expense um, on a very high revenue. <laughs> so it's pretty good. Just going with my initial comment, because, of course, this is, as you say, is supplementary. You've got other things going on. And for those, I guess where I was coming from is for those that uh, go, oh, we couldn't possibly afford to do this. We can't do that. It's there's actually a route into this, and uh, again, combining with regular, you know, potentially insurance paying, insurance um, partnershiping partnerships with insurance for other things, then this becomes exceptionally sustainable. And it does makes good sense. And and you know, Rob, even agencies that aren't doing a robust MIH program or community paramedic program, uh, do it with your regular ambulance stuff. So if you've got just ambulance providers. And your medical director is agreeable and the agency chief is available is, is agreeable. So you give some additional training on patient navigation. Maybe it's a telehealth interface and, and those kind of things. And you just say to the community, okay, you can call 911 if you like. That's fine. Or you can call this 10-digit number and we're going to come non-emergency. We're going to bring the ambulance. We're not going to come license siren, but we're going to come to your house. We'll be there within the hour. Again, no real response time criteria if they don't call 911 because this helps manage your 911 volume, which then reduces demand and reduces expenses. But you generate the revenue from it, but you're still using the same resources that are on duty for other calls. And as long as it's not overtaxing your availability for uh, other 911 calls, and most systems have enough capacity, um, it's something that could be very easily implemented, even if you aren't doing community paramedics. Excellent. So there's one to follow. Clearly, you're live, and uh, we will keep keep up with you on this one to see how it goes, because clearly there is a blueprint for anybody else. And, and I know you guys at MedStar, there is a blueprint, and I'm sure you're very happy to share it, right? We are, absolutely, always, because rising tide floats all boats. Excellent. So let's just take an early opportunity to have a quick message from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Welcome back. I'm talking to the man himself, Matt Zavadsky. But don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. Also, you can follow us on all those channels, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Amazon Music. 
Matt, you're back in the room. Thank you for just uh, hanging on through those messages. Now, the next topic, a number of things have culminated to put this one on the agenda this morning. So last week, I was at NAMSP, and I have to tell you, I know you weren't there, or unless you snuck in and snuck out. But, I, was, uh, I was there in the beginning for the were, pre-cons. There you go. You were there in the beginning. I have to say, NAMSP, bravo, well done. The place had a buzz about it. It was energetic. Yes. The education was, was outstanding. The sessions were brilliant. And if you have if you haven't read my article in EMS1 uh, on uh, Kristen Flannery and her keynote, I commend that you do that because that just blew us all away. I don't know if you stayed on for that, Matt, or not, but... Uh, I was not able to, I'm sorry. You were not able to. As I joked, semi-joked on my Twitter page that uh, an onion-cutting ninja had run around the room because there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was exceptionally moving. It brought a lot home to us. Um, and uh, I'll save I'll save further comment on that for uh, for read the article. Um, it's uh, really was something. And of course, I managed to get an interview with Kristen afterwards as well. And we're going to put that up. Um, of course, you did. <laughs> so, of course, of course, I did. Uh, she did. That's <laughs> awesome. She wasn't going to get away. I was chasing her down the, the bridge. If you were NMSP, I was chasing her down the bridge between the two hotels. Kristen, Kristen, stop. Anyway, moving on. So that's culmination point number one. And of course, the, the, the reason for mentioning NMSP, apart from just to big them up because it was amazing, was a lot of work, a lot of discussions, a lot of presentations on red lights and sirens. So point one. Yeah. Yeah. Point two is that uh, you and the good uh, Dr. Doug Coopers have just put an article up in EMS1 on red lights and sirens reduction. But more importantly, what brings it home is you've been in the news. Um, this week, obviously, you're having some ice-related issues in uh, your locality. And, of course, we saw what happened was it last year or the year before with the, yes. the highway there. But on every news story that you've done, you've actually told everybody, and it's now starting to get some traction. There's, and by the way, our red lights and sirens are off. So talk about your strategy. Talk about the weather, first of all, and then we'll come on to the article. What's going on down there right now in uh, in Fort Worth? Yeah, Rob, we all saw what you did there about the concept getting traction during our ice storm. That was that was very good because um, we've had I, I no will, traction. I will insert the drum and cymbal at that point. Exactly. That was very good. So uh, North Texans don't do bad weather well. And we've had, yet again, in typical February fashion, uh, a winter and ice storm event here in North Texas. And as we have in the past – when conditions become too dangerous for our crews to push the limits of themselves, the ambulance, the community, by responding hot to calls, we suspend with full concurrence of our medical director, Dr. Jeff Jarvis, and Ken Simpson, our CEO, and, and, and the crews, we suspend the use of lights and siren. We do that when we have tornadoes and hail, and but you know we have bad weather. So the difference is we normally do that without telling anyone that we've done that. This year, because of a very significant community collaborative to reprioritize our EMD response determinants in an effort to reduce red light and sirens or hot operations, which we are part of that NEMSQA um, project, we sort of made a deliberate comment in our community releases that, oh, by the way, here are all the crashes and falls and hypothermia cases that we've responded to, and we've suspended light and siren operations for responding to calls. Right, let me just jump that, in there and give you the standard community response. Are you ready? Ah, but people will die. Have they died? <laughs> exactly. They have not. And 
So what was interesting, Rob, is as as you may know, we've got some pretty amazing media relationships here, and um, during yes, we all interview- saw you deliver the free coffee to the reporter <laughs> oh, as well. Yeah, Just saying, funny. well, done. And, and actually, folk, that's the way to uh, liaise, get on, and communicate, and make friends with your media. Another lesson for another day, perhaps. Anyway, carry on. So during the interviews um, and the responses that we got. Yes, they cared about the statistics and how the crews were, were were holding up and that kind of stuff. But everybody wanted to know. So, what's this like non-light and siren thing? Why are you doing that? Um, wh- what is the hope? Uh, is there a risk? And we were able to deliver very succinct but compelling messages to the community. Um, it's safer for our crews. It's safer for the motoring public, especially in bad weather, people moving out of the way, wake effect crashes. We didn't use that terminology. We use very simple terminology. Um, and then the, the comment about most of our 911 calls are not time life sensitive emergencies. Uh, are we take an oath to do no further harm if we know that we're doing something that causes further harm while we're getting to a call that probably doesn't need uh, an immediate response, then we're not fulfilling our oath. Um, and to, to be honest, Rob, the, the vast majority of the feedback that we have gotten on our social media, emails, comments from the media, other people has been, well, that makes a lot of sense to the point that just this morning, somebody asked uh, on a live interview, um, are you guys still operating without license siren? I said, yes, we are because uh, the roads are still bad. And and the, the reporter, the news anchor said, have you considered doing that like all the time? <laughs> it's like, you know, we have. We're, we're having some community Thank dialogue. Thank you, news to make, make sure you make that the headline. And then, of course, exactly. you know, every great journey, Matt, begins with but one small step. Obviously, we've done the data, the research bit. And now you're out there telling people, okay, we're not doing it. Well, we'll yeah. Just uh, don't and, turn them back on again. And we are not stacking bodies like cordwood at City Hall because we're not responding hot to calls. Um, and, you know, our medical director, and we love Dr. Jarvis, and he's doing an amazing job here. They implemented a, a medical directive uh, sort of in the same theme of, of bad weather, bad driving, all sorts of stuff, that no patients will be transported with CPR in progress. Meaning that if you don't get any, and we have a pretty assertive termination of resuscitation policy already, but um, even for our eCPR program and other things, if you don't, you're just not going to transport patients in cardiac arrest, period. During the same time that you're not responding hot to calls, there is no reason for us to relocate corpses from the field to the emergency room. Um, so it's very synergistic, and quite frankly, it's been very well received um, by our entire community. This is excellent, and uh, we haven't actually got onto the article that you wrote yet, but uh, one of the things I've said to all the folk that are involved in the research of red lights and sirens, and, and perhaps this is the, the, the political part of me coming out, is that, you know, great stuff, good data, but now you have to turn it into action by convincing your locally elected officials, the ones that set your policy, and also maintain the expectation of the citizen that this is the right thing to do. So I commend you because you've started that phase of this particular you know operation and this is a bit that i'm waiting for someone to do and you're doing it so bravo sir you know rob if we could just uh, spend another couple of minutes on this subject you know the the political navigation in local communities is going to be up to the local leaders but i will share with you a the data is there the research is compelling and, and there's lots of it b this concept of community expectation and we hear that and, and we even hear it here that the community expects the community expects and our pushback to that as a profession needs to be 
really? Is that really what the community expects? Or is that something that we've taught them to expect because we were competing for contracts? or because it was easy metric to measure from, from a quality perspective. You know, when you talk to the folks at Medic, when you talk to the folks at some of the other AIM High member uh, organizations that have made the transition to 30-minute, 60-minute, low-acuity, 911 response times, as long as you set the expectation for the caller, and we've seen that here even through the bad weather, when the 911 caller says, hey, you know, I twisted, I fell on the ice, twisted my ankle, I think it's broken. Okay, we're going to send an ambulance, no license siren. They'll be there within the hour. If anything changes, call us back. Once the person knows, you've acknowledged someone's coming, what's the anticipated time frame? It could, it's supposed to be within an hour. And we've even taken our EMS survey team data and analyzed it based on response times. And even with response times of 45, 60, 75 minutes, patients are still ranking their experience as a five out of five because they knew they had a low acuity call. And the fact that somebody came, well, today, <laughs> they were pretty fe- pleased with that. Yeah. I mean, so, that, that's that's an excellent point. I'm, I'm watching with some degree of trepidation and a lot of wincing what's going on in the UK. And of course, the NHS care is free at the point of delivery. Therefore, the public expectation has been set that an ambulance is going to arrive within minutes. And of course, we've just, we can see that they're in a strike. There's a, it's almost a general strike going on in the UK at the moment across anyone that has remotely government funded income. Um, and of course, that's really causing the public to say, well, where is the ambulance? Well, the trouble is we can't get away from the hospital, therefore we can't come to you. And of course, the public doesn't understand that we can't get there quickly. And it's kind of kind of related. And uh, I'm having uh, Darren Mockery from the Association of Ambulance Chief Executives on once it's calmed down a little bit over there to, to kind of talk about some of these issues. And I think they Will it ever calm down, Rob, or is this the uh, new normal? You know what? I've been in the US for 14 years now, Matt, and uh, I, I, it's the it's Groundhog Day. It was Groundhog Day a few days ago, but it's, it's been Groundhog <laughs> right. Year over there um, because of the public expectation, because of the where were the where were the medics. But that said, um, two tier systems actually, and we, we might talk about that in a minute. You know, even 15 years ago when I was the chief in the East of England Ambulance Service, we had the rapid response EMT. Not mm-hmm. the rapid response paramedic, the rapid response EMT if we needed it. Because, of course, heart attacks require someone to apply basic life support first. And so, therefore, if we can get there, or sorry, heart attacks and cardiac arrests, I nearly mixed up the plumbing and the electrics there. I'll, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to edit that out. I'm going to leave it in. because That's good, yeah. You know, and, and actually, let's just – I'm going down a rabbit hole here. We can do that because it's you, right? Yeah. When people ask me to explain the difference between cardiac arrest – and heart attack slash myocardial infarction, my simple answer is plumbing versus electrics. Think about it. Anyway, uh, moving on. So uh, you and our good friend and also uh, EMS one-stop contributor, Rob Luckritz, did a great summary of uh, the uh, National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians 2022 EMS Worker Engagement Survey. uh, You're going to sound the klaxon uh, in a second uh, for community (laughs) leaders. Top five things. What I'll do, Matt, is we'll do a fairly quick fire round. I will throw the heading at you and give us a succinct, um, you know, response to that, if you don't mind. You bet. And of course, the way I like you, the way that you've done this, Matt, is this could be Letterman, right? We're going to have the top five starting with five coming down to one. So are you ready for the quick fire round? I I think so. Okay, in at number five, we stink at communicating effectively with our workforce and go. Yeah, we, we rely on email. We rely on other things that aren't 
that aren't effective. We need to get out in front of those people. We need to go out to their stations. We need to go out to the hospital and just hang out, talk to them when they're getting their ambulance ready, or better yet, get their ambulance ready for them. That way, they when they come out, you can have a conversation with them. We, we have to go out and see people face-to-face, have a conversation. That's the only effective way we can communicate needs, listen to them, what they want, what they need, how can we change to make life better for them. Actually, this is a fairly smelly survey, or did you write this deliberately? Number four, we stink, again, we're pretty stinky already, at providing feedback to our employees about their performance and their patients. Every employee engagement survey, and especially the exit interviews that we have done by an outside agency, when the question comes up, did you get regular feedback from your supervisor, the answer is almost always either no, I never got feedback from my supervisor, or only when I did something wrong. We as humans tend to focus on the negative. We need to find every opportunity to say, hey, great job in this call. Thanks for getting to that scene and not crashing the ambulance on the ice. Thanks for coming to work today. Um, hey, by the way, did you know that the heart attack victim, the shooting victim, the stroke victim that you had uh, did well and, and taking pictures and doing whatever it is? But that ability to effectively give feedback to people about their their body of work is something we just don't do well. And we need to figure out either through automation, through on-demand access by the employee, or again, by face-to-face communication at a post location, at a station, at the hospital, just thanking them and, and giving them feedback about the fact that we really enjoy them being part of our organization. Great. And uh, this one is dear to my heart and the campaigns that I'm running in California right now, and I'll come on to that when you finish talking. But number three, we don't pay our people enough. We don't. And the reason we don't, Rob, is because we don't get paid enough. The the amount of money that EMS agencies get from payers, from the federal government, from the state governments, uh, sucks. And unless you're heavily subsidized by the local community, you can't afford to pay people what they're worth. And until we fix the underlying economic model for EMS, either making an essential service publicly funded and people um, are, are heavily subsidized or Medicare realizes that they're paying half what it costs to provide the service and the, uh, the commercial payers realize that they can't send the payment to the patient because they never return it to the provider. Until we fix that, it is really difficult to pay people what they're worth. And because of that, they leave EMS, they go work for Amazon, they go work for Chipotle, they go work at the hospitals. Hospitals are poaching our people all the time because they're cheap nurses. Um, it's it's a significant issue. And until we fix the economic model, it's really hard. for. I just <laughs> heard yesterday that a very prominent fire department in Southern California is having a hard time getting paramedics, and they are offering a $100,000 sign-on bonus for paramedics who want to become firefighters. And that is just not sustainable in our well, industry, in our profession. N- number of California-related issues. Uh, I've received notice in the last 24 hours of three ambulance companies that are either have closed immediately or have issued the WARN Act notices to their staff to close. Topic for another conversation. Um, this last week, I was down in LA, actually, and uh, getting ready for our California um, legislative season where we are again asking for an increase to Medi-Cal, which is uh, Medicaid to translate into federal speak. Um, we haven't had a pay rise or an increase in 20 years. And of course, that means we can't pass it on. We've been interviewing EMTs for our sort of media splurge. And the phrase that pays for us, Matt, and the one that we, we went, oh, wow, is that the, the, the medic that said, listen, the guy that puts the fries in the fat earns more money than me putting the gauze in the wound. 
like, holy wow that's yeah. that's yeah. that's the soundbite that's the and it's true but also uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks on ems one stop uh, i sat down and recorded podcasts with firstly labor in the same room as management and actually the key to our coalition in, particularly in california which is exceptionally labor friendly quite right so is that we have every labor union that, that represents ems in the in on the same coalition and last week in the same room and we recorded an amazing podcast to talk about listen you know we we negotiate we have collective bargaining agreements but if we get that right in the first phase of our you know our life cycle if you like we can spend the rest of the time all heading in the same direction and that's a powerful message and in the second half or the, the week after i actually got emts round the mic to talk about them and again, Matt, very, very powerful, and I can't wait to bring that to air. But it all comes back to we don't pay our people enough, and hopefully I'm going to bring some live examples of that. Um, you know, fundfirstresponders.org is our campaign in California. It's just a surrogate for the rest of the country. The things that we're trying to sort out, as you started off in this particular segment, it's the same thing. Exactly right. And, Rob, I would say that, you know, it's not that we can't, that we don't pay our people enough. It's that we can't pay our people enough. We need to fix the can't. Well, exactly. You know, and, and retail, you know, have you seen the price of a dozen eggs at the moment? My goodness. I mean, right. that's probably another reason. But, you know, it's all passed on to the fact is that if, if resource is limited, cost increases. Uh, we can't right. do that. And that's the piece we need to make. And, you know, I, I'm really sad that we've, we've lost or losing three amateur services in California. But actually, it's another shot across the bow of our elected officials to say, listen, you know, why are they doing this? Well, because economics, I've said this for 10 years, Matt, you know, EMS is a business like it or not. If you can't get the money in to pay the people, the people won't work for you and you can't get the money in. It's as simple as that. Right. Parking my soapbox now, I'll get down, get off it. Um, number In at number two, work-life balance is a real thing. Yeah, for for a while we did um, uh, shift differentials and and bonuses and, uh, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars to pick up a shift this weekend, blah, blah, blah. And what we found over over time is that people just wouldn't do it. Even, you know, when they're going to be making time and a half, maybe a shift differential and a $200, $300, $400 incentive to pick up a night weekend shift, they still wouldn't do it. And when we asked people, you know, you, Rob, you and I have been around a very long time. And, and honestly, if, if that were offered to me, I, I'm going to get more money. I want the money. I want to be able to do things for my family. I want to do whatever. And the response that we got oftentimes was, ah, I enjoy my time off more. I enjoy my hiking. I enjoy my, uh, you know, whatever it is, Rob, I know that that's a, a big thing in your life. They need and want that off time, that downtime. And we need to figure out ways that we can create um, work-life balance schedules and expectations of employees and team members that they value so that they stay within our organization. We started this program several years ago called self-scheduling. And people who earn the uh, the benefit of being able to do this because they've got great attendance, they you know do extra things, they you know whatever they can be at what's called self scheduling, and as long as they pick up the right number of shifts, the right number of hours, we don't care when they work. We're not going to give them a schedule. We're going to leave it up to them to figure out what schedule they want to pick up. And the folks that do that, amazing retention. Because now we're giving them the ultimate flexibility. If they've got a childcare issue, if they've got a vacation plan, if they've got something they want to do with their family, they just don't schedule themselves for those two, three days. And they make it up, you know, two days beforehand or three days afterwards. Um, they don't have to worry about getting coverage and requesting PTO. Um, and people love it. And that's something that we all need to look at to find that 
work-life balance and keep people from leaving our organization and, and going into a different profession or going to a different type of provider. You're right about the work-life balance. I mean, you know that uh, Nancy and I, every weekend you want to find us, we're on a hill or on a hike somewhere because that's our great method of unwinding from the last week and getting ready for the next week. And also it's fresh air and it's a lot of steps. Um, but you know, you've got to have something, you've got to have something and do something and focus on something. I know you're just going to, you know, you're, you're going to buy some sort of uh, Texas horse ranch soon. Um, exactly. I owned three horses uh, years ago and I can tell you that uh, poop scooping is a great place to reflect and think you've got it, you've got it coming, mate. Look forward to that. And and remember how valuable you are, right, when you're doing that. <laughs> yes. If the family say, Don't worry, we'll take part in the equine care uh, uh, no no. It's 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 a it's a bluff. They they're trying to get anyway. Um it was fun, but uh, I don't do that anymore. Anyways, uh oh, so let's get in at number one. Uh, drum roll, please. Here we go. This is a long term challenge that needs long term solutions. Yeah, we're past the point of putting a Band-Aid on, uh, you know, an amputated limb. The the changes that we need to talk about, the changes that need to be implemented, we're done talking, that need to be implemented are fundamental and they must change. Essential service designation is is probably one of the most important things, as long as it's tied to funding and, and those kind of things. Um, but we can no longer be satisfied with getting a two-year extension of a Medicare increase in payments, a, uh, you know, a, a short bump in a grant to help with workforce development. These are fundamental changes. We need to go from, uh, you know, look at the PCG data, public consulting group data. If we know that across the country, on average, it costs $1,000 to put an ambulance in front of an address, our revenue for that response needs to be $1,000, whether we transport or not, uh, we're delivering care. We're, we're delivering care on time that people want it, et cetera, et cetera. And the payers need to get serious. The federal government needs to get serious. The states need to get serious to have California paying 125 bucks to a, a, an organization who's contracted to a city to provide emergency ambulance service um, is just ridiculous when it's costing 1500 to 2000 to put that ambulance in front of the address. These are fundamental changes that we need to the entire economic model for EMS up to and including training on our, 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 our basic EMT programs on how to make the safe determination that someone doesn't need to go to the hospital. Because if we can figure out how to navigate patients, like the Scottish Ambulance Service just put out recently, 50% of their responses they are not bringing to the hospital. That's what we all need to be doing because that's better for the patient, better for the payer, and we can show a lot more value than billing per mile. Sorry, I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I, I, I passed it across the room. There you go. You have it there. <laughs> Listen, mate, we've actually cantered, to use the equine reference. There we go. I'm full of them today. We've cantered around a number of really important issues. Uh, so thank you very much for uh, taking the time to just bring us up to date. And it's always good having you as a guest. Uh, standard journalistic question. Uh, this now is another Robism. Is there anything I haven't asked or anything that you want to tell me? Uh, no, I just really think that you know you and EMS One are, are just doing so much to educate uh, everyone in our profession, and really that needs to continue because uh, you know we just for UCLA Bex we just did a, a webinar with Dr. Mackey and Dr. Kazan and a bunch of folks, and the response from that to all of the presenters, hey, can you come help me here? Can you give me some ideas for this? Can you give me some ideas for that? We all need to be lending our collective ideas to each other so that we can move this economic model for EMS to where it really needs to be. 
Excellent. And for those listening, uh, Dr. Baxter Larman, of course, needs no introduction. And Dr. Clayton Kazan, who is the medical director of LA County Fire and an outstanding guy as well. So I'm. I'm and Dr. What, Kevin what Mackey from work Sackfire. <laughs> he was also on it. Oh, uh, let me, of course, Kevin Mackey. I know he actually listens to this podcast. So, yes. uh, uh, Dr. Kevin Mackey, of course, yes, Amazing up at Sackfire. Uh, also, now the medical director for Sacramento County. Correct. And, of course, involved very very importantly with the national registry as well so uh, shout out i'm going to sh- yeah, sh- name dropping everywhere today matt <laughs> it's okay I, I name drop you wherever i go and everybody knows you so it's fine yeah but i have a subscription with you to do that <laughs> star saver plus right yeah rob rob, rob and matt plus anyway let's get back on to the on to ending the show um and so if we want to follow you and your initiatives how can we do that uh, Matt Zavatsky is the Twitter handle at M-A-T-T-Z-A-V-A-D-S-K-Y. Um, but we put a ton of stuff on our website. So medstar91.org, um, please. And if you, Rob, and the contact information through EMS1, call, email, carrier pigeon, text, whatever. Um, we will help anybody do any of these programs because it just, it helps the entire profession. Listen, mate, thank you very much. I'm on Twitter at UKRobL1. Find me over on LinkedIn. Um, we talked about hiking. If you want to live and take your exercise vicariously through me, just go to YouTube and visit my hike channel, UKRobL Hikes, and uh, I'll take your exercise for you, and I'll be delighted to do so. But nah, get out and take your exercise yourself. Matt, again, thanks, mate. It's been a pleasure. Rob, always a pleasure. God bless you, sir. Okay, that was Matt Zavadsky. I was Rob Lawrence. An amazing range of topics. This has been EMS One Stop. Until next time, bye for now. 